Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a podcast featuring the experiences of individuals living with or affected by sexually transmitted infections. Today I'm here with L. Stanger. Is that how you said? Stanger? Stanger? <laughs> it rhymes with hanger. So okay. Stanger. L. Stanger. All right. And L, you have HPV. Is that correct? I do. I have one of the over 100 strains that we know about. Um, I luckily, so here's the thing, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, now says that um, up to 90% or 100% of all partnered, sexually partnered um, American adults will at some point probably get HPV, okay? So that's really important to know because it kind of removes some of the stigma when it's like, hey, we're all going to eventually have this. Um, but it's also good to know because there's only a few strains that are cancer causing. So I did go get screened for those. Um, I had a colposcopy, not a colonoscopy. That's where they check out your butt. Um, but I had a colposcopy where they, they cut some little pieces of my cervix out and checked them and it was an uncomfortable procedure for me some people don't mind i didn't have a great time but i got the results back and i don't even remember what the name of the strain is that i have because it's like oh it's not gonna kill me probably great you know yeah um but it's it's so funny because i am so lucky that i know all of these things because if i had been diagnosed with this 10 years ago i would have felt so ashamed so unlovable so, I mean, the word slutty comes up, you know, dirty. I would, have, I would have felt all of these things because that's how we are raised to feel. But um, so I've been um, an adult entertainer. I've been a stripper primarily, uh, naked on the Internet. I've done some, a little bit of escorting, um, some fetish work. So I'm a sex worker for about 10 years. And it is very important that I am risk aware and proactive because I'm engaging with the public, okay? Um, but what's more interesting is the more I read as I'm now, I've gone through this program, I'm becoming a certified sex educator, I host my own sex education podcast, Strange Bedfellows. So as I'm going deeper into this, it seems to be that the people who are most likely to have STIs that in the long run will hurt or kill them um, are the people who never get tested. So the folks that are like, oh, well, I'm monogamous, you know, I've been in this monogamous relationship, and then maybe that monogamous relationship, but they never get tested because they think, well, I don't, you know, quote, sleep around, have multiple partners, cheat, whatever. Um, so it's really the general public who doesn't ever know their status. These are the people who transmit things. You know, chlamydia, for example, is not a big deal if you get tested for it and take an antibiotic, don't have sex for a week, you know, your partner takes an antibiotic you don't have sex for a week. And then um, otherwise, if you don't do that and you have chlamydia, not only could you be spreading it to other people or having perhaps symptoms, because like 90% of people who have chlamydia actually don't have symptoms. Um, but in say 10 years, the bacteria might have grown up your body to where you now have pelvic inflammatory disease and you're sterile. Um, or it, in rare cases, people die. New York State apparently um, in the last few years had a huge... Uh, like unusually high death rate. Like if, if anyone was going to die of PID in America, it was women or people with vaginas in New York. Um, 
which is just so random, but that just tells me that there's people who aren't, they're just not getting tested for it. People either can't afford it or clinics are closing in their area or they've been so heavily stigmatized they don't go. Uh, does that, <laughs> that's keep just going. jumping off. Yeah, no, <laughs> keep going. Because this is very useful information. And for you two, of, like, I don't do a lot of research. All of this is just experience-based. So when people come on and they present new facts and later on I'm able to look and see, you know, oh, my God, this is a real thing or this is true, or I'm able to take it to someone else who may need this kind of information, it's very useful to have and be able to reference whenever I'm trying to help someone else through their diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, what you're doing is very helpful because these stories matter. You know, in research, it's what we call qualitative data. It's it's people versus quantitative data, which is numbers. They're both important, but like, yeah, we identify with these stories. I heard you talk about that on Man Issues, the uh, episode yeah. eight of your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to that yeah. before we came. I was like, all right, let me oh, make yeah. sure I listen to some of these too before we talk. Yeah. But um, how long ago were you diagnosed with HPV? Um... Let's see. I was diagnosed with HPV. Holy crap. I'd have to ask my boyfriend. I don't remember. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry. It was only, only, I think a year ago mm-hmm. and I've been having sex for, let's see, I'm, I'll be 32 this year. So since I was like 15, so more than half my life, mm-hmm. you know, so the odds were kind of like in my favor. I mean, I even said in my favor, but I, I had a good attitude, obviously, going into this. And I remember thinking, if I don't have it by now, like, I'm kind of surprised. Right. And that's just so, and it's just so shocking. I mean, I just love to tell a room full of people, like, you know, the CDC says that now, like, all of us are going to have HPV. Mm-hmm. Because what, you know, how different was it? In looking at articles when I was starting to research it, um, there was one on menshealth.com. And I ended up writing and updated, so you have an STI, what to do now? So their previous writing was only like four or five years old, and it said that a quarter of the population had HPV, okay? Between five years, we went from a quarter of the people have it, this is an epidemic, to nah, pretty much everyone's going to get it. Um, And it's also important to know, and I don't mean to be casual lax about HPV, but the reason that, again, it's important to be proactive is because the people who are most likely to get cancer... Um, the people most susceptible to like faster growing um, strains doing damage are younger people where if you have a cervix, it's more ripe, it's more absorbent, let's say. After the age of 25, there's a joke that we all start dying. Well, your cells don't regenerate as fast and your cervical cells shed out. So you can shed out the strain. Um, So if you're younger than 25, if you're, they'd say like, I think 11 to 16, is where they recommend um, girls, you know, kids with vulvas to get vaccinated because if if there's a likelihood that they could get cancer, yes, it makes sense to get the vaccine. I did not have the vaccine. It didn't exist when I was that age. And now there's no point in me getting it. So, because I right. have already. Right. And you also mentioned uh, stigma behind HPV. Yeah. Is there one? It's, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, it's a lesser one. So I know, like herpes is a big one that people there's a lot of stigma around herpes and that's when i like to remind people that if you get a cold sore you already have herpes you have a herpes simplex one it surprises me how many people don't know that yeah or are in denial about it right and they're like oh it's a canker sore whatever Mm -hmm. whatever if you have a sore don't 
and this is where it gets complicated, but if you have an oral sore, you don't go down on someone because then they can start having sores there too. Um, I remember when I went to get tested the last time, the nurse asked me if I had any symptoms. I said, well, I've gotten cold sores since I was a kid. And she says, okay, well, we just won't check you for that. But if I at some point, you know, get tested and I test positive for Simplex 2, I will not be surprised because you get Simplex 2 from friction, even skin rubbing. So when people are like, I had someone write to me and they said, how protected can I be? I want to have sex with my boyfriend and condoms, you know, dental dams. I said, you can do all of that, but it's not an absolute. Right. You know, so let's be realistic here about when we engage in any kind of contact sport activity, whether it's wrestling, football, basketball, we have to know our risks. Um, a lot of people don't know that when they studied 111 brains of deceased NFL football players, um, 110 of them showed in uh, signs for, I forget what it's called, but it's like repeated head trauma to the brain. And the symptoms of this can be severe uh, depression, aggression, um, mood changes, 110 out of 111, okay? So when little kids start playing football, do we tell them like, hey, if you want to go pro, there's like a 99% chance by the time you die, you have severe brain damage that may alter your mood or make you violent towards your family members. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, like we talk about being risk aware and that is that is in all parts of life. If you're eating, if you're traveling. Um, so just having the information helps. It you know, does. it's so easy to point a finger and be like, you're dirty you're gross and it's like well have you ever had chicken pox mm-hmm. that's transmitted i mean and herpes is just another strain of chicken pox family apparently too yeah so yeah you know you oh know. yeah i blogged in a lot of different places about a lot of different things and just asking questions so that i can try and make this podcast more useful to everyone and mm-hmm. i was told by a group or a member of a group um, who was living with HPV, he was like, hey, yeah, don't make this a problem. It's not one. And I was just like, well, damn, like, do I just completely leave it out of the podcast? Because primarily we talk about herpes and HIV, AIDS. I can't just overlook HPV as a whole. Don't ever overlook HPV because 30-ish percent of cervical cancers are caused by a strain of HPV that causes cancer. So people do die from this. Um, and then having my colposcopy, like I said, was not a pleasant experience. Uh, the reason I had that is because when I went to get my yearly or my every other yearly pap smear, which is what you should do from like 15 and on, but you should do this throughout your life, especially if you're partnered sexually. And I got inconclusive results. So that's why I had to go further. So it's not that we should ever be dismissive of any STI, even in the cases when we speak about something that's easily treated like chlamydia or syphilis or gonorrhea. I mean, these are all things that you can take medication for, but if you don't know you have them, they can advance so severely into your body. I mean, syphilis will make you insane. It will go into your brain. Actually. They think Henry VIII, the king who killed all of his wives, besides being like a total psychopath, they think he had such advanced syphilis that it made him senile. I think Trump has advanced syphilis and it's made him fucking senile too. God willing, please die soon. <laughs> can I say that? You can, can say on Facebook you, it'll be hate speech. Yeah, oh God, you can totally say this. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, I have a lot. 
you and I spoke about this on the phone before talking, but one of the reasons that this podcast was started was because someone with herpes wanted to commit suicide. And when she expressed that to me, I started to notice it everywhere. When I noticed that, it was like, okay, well, how many people have probably killed themselves because they have herpes or they got diagnosed with anything? So if there's one thing that can be taken away from this, it's that your life isn't over after you have herpes or after you get an STI diagnosis. By you being a sex worker, you are living proof of that. So you were just diagnosed yeah. with HPV and you know you're knowledgeable about SCIs and you're aware of the risks. How do you prepare for that? Like, how do you prepare psychologically for the risks that comes with being a sex worker? And is being a sex worker as high risk of contracting an SCI as being in a monogamous relationship? Are we looking at the same things here? So with the last part of that, I just want to touch on, like, I wouldn't even begin to be able to measure what any transmission rate is between all of these large groups of populations. I will say that if you are a responsible, proactive person in your work, it behooves you to take care of your body. I think that a lot of clients also don't know what to ask because in general, all of us tend to be really bad at talking about our desires, our boundaries, um, our, our concerns. We don't really talk with them about them with our doctors even. Or when was the last time your doctor asked, like, how's your sexual functioning in your life? You know, do you have any questions with that? We just don't have these conversations. So I don't even know. And again, when we're talking transmission rates as a stripper, I don't really have many serious concerns. If there was the, I guess, hepatitis C, okay, that lives in blood, transmitted blood to blood or blood to fluids, blood to blood, I believe. Let's say that there's blood on the stage. For some reason, there's blood on the stage at the strip club. You know, we're going to have that cleaned. But the likelihood that someone with hep C infected blood is going to, number one, draw blood in the venue where I work is very low. If I have a client who wants me to, like, say, slap them around or hit them, I don't do anything that breaks the skin because that's a transmission risk, you know, and I, and I tell other strippers that or other people who would do any level of contact sex work. I'm like, eh, don't, you don't want to ever fuck with blood. I've known some dominatrixes, uh, some dungeon holders who have like all the cleaning and the tools to sanitize any of the blood play that they would do. You know, and again, it depends where you are. It depends how you're interacting. It depends who you're interacting with. Um, how do I prepare? I guess it's just being aware. You know that there's a risk. So in the event that you are diagnosed with an SCI, what's your attitude about it? I mean, so someone once asked porn star Stoya how she avoids getting preggers from um, fucking on camera. And she said, I avoid getting preggers the same way everyone else tries to with birth control or pulling out, you know. So... I've joked that it would be like a horror story, like a stripper lore horror story that I could become, say, pregnant from a lap dance if someone came in their pants and I didn't know it. And I sat in their cum and it like got inside me, you know, God forbid. Well, the odds of that happening is pretty freaking low because number one, sperm dies really fast. Number two, you're not encouraged to ejaculate into your pants when I'm giving you a dance. Number three, I would hopefully notice and not squish my vulva into it. So, like, you know, realistically, it's, that's not really a thing. Um, when I did escort very briefly, and very briefly because it's dangerous, illegal work, 
that is very valuable and should certainly be given a place in our society because people will do it and, and there's a demand and people deserve to be able to pay for any service consensually and provide it. Um, but I wore condoms. I had my clients wear condoms when I sucked their dick and they wore condoms when I fucked them. And if they went down on me, well, I did not use a dental dam, but they also didn't have any open sores. There was no activity where any blood would be exchanged. Um, so in that is pretty relatively low risk. If you're talking about someone who's not a sex worker, but they go get drunk at a party and have unprotected sex once or maybe five or 20 times a year. Right. It just depends how you live. And I meant to ask this earlier, but you were like, you were on it. Um, what, how do we define sex work? That's a good question. So God, I wish I had a good, wish I had a good like nutshell phrase for this. I would say sex work is any labor that is performed for the purposes of arousal or pleasure that is sexually relevant. Uh, I'll have to, like, remember that little... little <laughs> there, we can just play this back um, for you. Perfect. I'll listen. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, because sex work doesn't necessarily require contact. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a guest on my previous podcast show, Unzipped PDX. Um, her name is Audrey Viva. She's a cam girl. She had a regular who would pay her to eat vegetables. I mean, is that sexual? Maybe to him. Well, if it causes arousal, then it would fall under that category, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also have a client who I've never met, but he says that based on social media, I seem very motherly and trustworthy. So I'm his pen pal and he pays me to tell me about his sexual challenges and dysfunctions. And I answer back, you know, I'm not a therapist. I was going to say, that seems more like, I seem, that seems more like therapy than anything else. You know, I used to joke that a lot of strippers are unlicensed underwear therapists. (laughs) Um, and I, and I've had clients tell me too, this kid two weeks ago, I told after listening to his history, I was like, dude, please don't marry this woman. No. And he's like, God, I got to start talking to you. My therapist doesn't tell me shit. But so anyway, so, so the services, what I do, even if it's sexually relevant, that would be, it's like sexual labor. It's emotional labor. If I'm writing someone about a fantasy, you know, that's sexual in nature, or it could be that I'm, you know, rubbing someone's face in between my breasts. Like that is very obviously what we consider more sexual. Yeah. Um, so it just really runs, it runs the gamut. Mm -hmm. gauntlet. And you mentioned short-term escort work how are you able to keep yourself safe in these situations like how do you set boundaries to keep yourself and whatever partners uh or clients safe yeah no clients totally um so i am a very privileged person i was able to receive referrals to my clients um these were other sex workers who either didn't have the time or weren't doing the work anymore and they'd say hey mike he was always good to me. You know, he might put on some cookie smooth jazz and want to talk about stocks or something, but he's a nice guy, you know? And, and I say like, how's hygiene? She's like, always oh, great. <laughs> um, so I was never doing like street level sex work where, which is very much something that people do to survive, whether they're homeless or they're dealing with substance abuse issues. Um, these again, these are reasons why we shouldn't criminalize poverty. Um, these are reasons why sex work should be decriminalized because if a woman who is maybe in an abusive relationship 
Uh, maybe she has criminal history, so she can't get hired in other conventional places. She has maybe children or a medical concern. She has to pay for things. Sex work is available, so she's going to walk the street. She gets picked up for it. Now she's in jail. She has all these other costs. She's been further marked by society and shamed. This is how we criminalize poverty. Um, and if you just cut out that part where you made it a crime to exchange a sexual act for money, then it wouldn't be a crime. Because, again, we pay for everything in this country. You know, we pay for people to make our clothes and feed us and cut our hair and all that shit. Yeah. So. One of the things that I really enjoy about your podcast is that you've discussed different areas of sex work. Like one of the things that blew my mind was um, talking about the uh, like people with disabilities, for example, uh, having sex work performed. And I can't remember if uh, someone was telling a story about the dad who jacked off their handicapped child. Severely, and... severely disabled son. Yeah. yeah. There, there's an article you can look up that says, I masturbate my profoundly disabled son. It's not an article. It's a story uh -huh. of sorts. And, um, and it's pretty heavy and it's a lot, you know, and that's like, that's the position where I'm like, wow, I don't know that I could do that. But then again, I've had all this contact with people that I'm not related to for different purposes. Um, yeah, that one, that piece is worth reading. Um, what was the question? Well, no, I mean, that was just like what I wanted to touch on. That was one of the points oh, that I wanted to make of just how, how relevant sex work is or how useful it is, whereas we criminalize it. And you also mentioned that one of the ways that you were able to stay safe was through referrals. Now, the law SESTA FOSTA, Fosta yeah. passed so and that even so there was a couple bills that were signed um, recently and the Democrats, Republicans, everybody, the media, they were like, these are great bills. They're called Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, FOSTA, and Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act, SESTA. And what it did was carve out Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has always governed the Internet. This is this was the thing that said that we don't hold websites liable for what their users post. So like on Craigslist, um, it was always like, hey, don't use Craigslist for the sale of sex. I'll use the term prostitution. Um, but of course people did because there's no other place to post your listings. If we had a website that said, these are the services offered, this is the rate, this is how you can acquire this, people would be able to pay for these things. But since these platforms don't exist, sex workers, again, who want to survive, we will do that in all the other conventional methods that already exist. So Facebook, um, Instagram, I can, I can advertise that I am stripping, which is a legal job, mind you, in the state where I work, but I can advertise on Instagram, this is how you come see me dance, this is where to find me, and people come in because I've advertised, and I make money that way. So after FOSTA and SESTA, these were supposed to hold um, these platforms liable for anything their users did in relation to prostitution or trafficking. They did this supposedly because they were coming after this website back page, which had been busted, allowing people to post minors. So, yes, trafficking. Um, Backpage was already getting sued and they were raided and already charged a day or so before these bills got voted in. So the laws that we had in place already worked. But what happened is after Foss and Sesta got voted in, all of these other platforms said, well, we don't want to be sued or charged with trafficking. If, say, on Facebook, I send a message to someone saying, hey, you know, 300 bucks for an hour or whatever, and, and then I 
it turns out that I'm being coerced or it's a trafficking thing, under the law now, Facebook could be sued. Not necessarily traffickers, Facebook. And that's why Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, Google Drive, um, Microsoft started banning sex workers, deleting our accounts, deleting our content, deleting sexually relevant content. This happened to erotica writers. This happened to sex researchers. This happened to sex teachers. This happened to clinicians. This happened to people doing outreach. Their files were deleted because all of these hosting platforms didn't want to be sued for anything that could be considered trafficking. Fuck. So it was a huge loss of information. And not only that, any of the websites where we could post, I used a website, exoticspot.com, for nine years. It was local. It was Portland locals for strippers to post their schedules where they were working. The owner was a nice guy, Jeff. Um, and Exotic Spot closed after Fosta and Sesta because, God forbid, anyone be using their emails to do something that's illegal. And women, we lost money. A lot of us lost money. I couldn't advertise my porn because I was afraid that social media would delete me. That same week, a car actually ran into my club and, and closed it for two uh, two weeks so under construction, and I had no source of income. I couldn't sell porn. I couldn't advertise webcam. I couldn't strip. Um, I write or I write on the side, but you know, like two hundred bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Writing does not pay very much. Okay, right. that's not enough to, to pay to feed my family. And so other people are like, we'll get another job. In this economy, I'm a pretty educated, capable able person with a lot of privilege and like out like resources get another job it doesn't work like that <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i have bills and while we're on so, the subject thank you for oh go ahead yeah no i was just say thank you for bringing that up so anytime there's legislation that further criminalizes the sale of sex uh please nobody support it there there was a new one elizabeth warren uh brought up and it's sb 952, I can't even remember, but it would end banking for traffickers. But does that mean that anybody who's involved in my work is now going to be considered a trafficker and now I can't get a bank account? Because Chase was closing porn stars accounts a few years ago. And a lot of women in my industry already have a hard time opening checking accounts anyway because of discrimination. People will say no to you. (laughs) They're not supposed to legally, but they do. And then what recourse do we have? Call the cops? Yeah, right. Cops don't even take a lot of sex workers seriously if they're raped or attacked. Mm. So. And there's no, and there's nothing we can do. Like, what were the benefits of these laws being passed just to um, prevent? Oh, really? So the the benefit to this was anti-porn, anti-sex work people got their way where they pushed us more into the shadows, made it harder for us to make money. Um, More deaths occurred in recent weeks after Backpage closed because workers who had relied on them to connect with their clients, advertise, screen them. Um, They did go start going out on dates on the street because you got to make money. Um, Especially if you really, really are in a, you know, tough spot and say like, I mean, I know a woman who was dancing seven nights a week for five years because her kid had cancer. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, the work is hard, but there's reasons people do it. So let them do it. Um, the best thing we can do anytime there's legislation that's like that anytime there is anything that does not know the difference between consensual sex work, what I do and sex trafficking or sex slavery, which is forcing someone to do anything sexual, um, for money. There are two different things. 
<laughs> so if someone doesn't know the difference between those two, like the biggest um, proponent of Faustin Sesta, besides Republicans who supposedly know a whole bunch about sex work for some reason, um, uh, was this uh, organization called the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And a lot of us have seen their flyers in the mail even. And you think, wow, that sounds like a really like well-esteemed organization. They must know what they're talking about. They were started as an anti-porn um, religious organization in 1962 called Morality in Media, and they started putting Bibles on people's doorsteps to protest um, pornography. So on their website, they consider sexting and child abuse, like sexual child abuse, to be the same thing. They think, yeah, porn, sexting, trafficking, um, sex slavery, uh, it's all the same. Like they have them all in these grainy words on their on their wallpaper, like these are all the evils. So it makes it hard to have to explain to people like, no, it's okay. Like my job is work, but no one is like holding a gun to my head, you know, quite literally yeah. or otherwise forcing me to do it. Like, again, I'm making the best choices I can under capitalism because we all get up in the morning or the night or whenever and go do something. A lot of us don't want to have to really do to pay our bills mm -hmm. and people do that till we die. And that's part of the reason so many of our generation is utterly depressed and anxious and suicidal is because we're, we're I mean, we're really struggling under capitalism. People are underpaid. Uh, wages aren't going up, but that's a whole other thing. Oh yeah. We, we wanted to talk about parenting. <laughs> yeah. So while we're on that, you have a child daughter. All right. So with the work that you do, how are you preparing her or equipping her with the knowledge or just having her prepare for potential backlash that she'll get? Oh, your mom's a sex worker, which people aren't going to use the term your sex worker. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say it. Yeah, I know. You're sweet. I appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate you a lot. Uh, yeah. So I've written a couple times about this. There is one on elephantjournal.com called I'm a sex worker and this is what I'll tell my child. I've also written something for Romper. Sex work makes me a better mother is something that I've said before just of all the skills that I've learned. But that's a whole separate thing. Um, so it's really interesting when you start to examine the idea that you are preparing your child not for discovering the horrors of what you do, because there's nothing horrible about what I do, dancing, touching people, talking with people, those are not inherently harmful things. I'm preparing my child for the way that people are going to treat her based on their own shame or ignorance or confusion around these topics. So with my child, we've always done, um, her father and I, we were married, we now co-parent. I'm very lucky, again, that I have a, a a co-parent partner, um, that we can, you know, discuss these things and also share time. Um, part of the reason I can be successful in any of my endeavors is because I have, you know, the help. Uh, but we both raised her very much to be aware of her own body, be able to state her needs or her wants. So if someone comes up, puts a hand on her shoulder, she'll move away and she'll say, please don't touch me without asking. It's really amazing how hard it is still as a grown adult woman to have to remind myself that I don't have to be nice if someone's making me uncomfortable. I don't have to be mean. Um, but so like we talk a lot about boundaries. So in my job, something that I'm able to exercise is ideally 
if someone wants to spend time with me, be near to me, smell my hair, feel my touch, they have to pay me and they have to be kind or they at least have to be making it lucrative enough to where I don't care that they're being unkind, but I have to be benefiting somehow, you know, it's an exchange. So the fact that I don't have any shame around my job is fantastic because she's not going to absorb any of it. You know, we are modeling ourselves for our children. The fact that I can explain, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about here where I say, you know, it's ridiculous that people make fun of what I do, but like who cleans your teeth, who picks up your garbage, you know, my first year in college, I had a teacher ask the class in sociology or something. She said, would any of you be ashamed to be married to some, to a garbage worker? And a lot of people were like, oh, I don't know if my family would think that's like a reputable, you know? So in this society, even though we have many, many, many functions necessary to, to give us the things we want and need, we still hold people in this weird hierarchy. You know, it's like the fast food worker gets less respect than the doctor. Obviously there's a different like skill set level requirements, but we should definitely support people to be successful in whatever they do because there's people who are never going to be able to be doctors there's people who are never able to be pilots or whatever else esteemed job you think, you know, um, some communities really support art. Some people really support music, you know, touch is very important to me. So it's really all about how you frame it. And then again, like when I go to the playground with my kid, she thinks it's amazing. She's like, look at all the cool shit my mom can do. Oh, <laughs> you, know? uh, you got like a crowd of kids, right? Like, Ooh, how do you do that? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, no, we, the other moms, like, if they're if they're uncomfortable, I mean, I don't do pole moves at the playground, but if I climb up on something, I'm going to, you know, just kind of hold on to it, because I can, because I'm strong, I'm athletic, and I'm playing with my child, and sometimes I realize I'm doing, like, 10 pull-ups, like, with her on me, and I see other parents <laughs> sitting, like, texting on their phones, being like, me, you're making me look lazy, and don't get me wrong, I sit and text on my phone all the time, but, like, this is something I'm able to share with my daughter because the physicality of my work has brought me so much closer to my own body. Yeah. Um, or when we go out and eat food, like she sees me tip people and tip them well because I rely on tips. So, I mean, she's not going to be a stingy, cheap dickhead motherfucker. (laughs) So yeah. So you're passing on the positives to your daughter and because we live in a society that more so values the opinions of other people before our own like we don't even give ourselves an opportunity to decide how we would feel dating a trash worker because we're so hell-bent on how am I going to tell my parents I'm dating someone who takes out trash you know mm-hmm. so and it's like well what would the world be like if we didn't have people who worked for maintenance yeah you know <laughs> and, and like what you said earlier with disability with folks who have like severe anxiety to where dating like talking to a woman you know, there's people that there's, there's reasons people have sexless lives, not because they're asexual or, or, or celibate. Those are different reasons. Those are different things. But people who are like, I could never get close enough to a woman, person, man, whatever. There's no way I would be able to have sex with them, but they're aching for that touch, you know? So that's why you see, um, studies where it says a lot of say cis men with like severe anxiety, or OCD or PTSD will seek out sex workers because it's understood that it's transactional. They're not worried. I'm going to judge them. They don't have to impress me for, you know, to their family. I'm not going to ask them a bunch of bullshit questions. Don't take me out to dinner. It's like, here, 
here's the money. What you know, here's the agreed upon thing. I'm going to perform this. Hopefully, we'll both be happy. So what I I have a personal question now that just kind of came up. Um, one yeah. of my friends and I we were debating on this, and he was talking about paying a woman for sex. And one of the debates was that is it okay to pay a woman for sex? What's the difference between that and taking her out to dinner and buying her drinks with the expectation of sex? Like, what what do you think of that? So, and that is, again, why sex work exists, because there were always, there's this idea that people who pay for sex are those who can't have it. And what I just said, that certainly can be the case. But plenty of clients and people in the world will pay for things because they can afford them and they want to, you know? I can make my own sandwich, but sometimes I want to go through the drive-through, you know? Yeah. And so I see people who have very rich, fulfilling, what seems like rich and fulfilling um, sex lives. Like, you know, couples come in and they want to enrich it more, or they just want to experience something. So there was an old, this is a funny reference, but there was an old, I think it was Sex in the City episode, a stupid show. But I remember one of the characters has sex with a man, and then I believe in the morning there's like an envelope of money, and she's very put off but kind of confused and conflicted because it's like an unexpected bonus like cool money but oh my god he thought I was a hooker and I kind of loved that because I was younger when I saw that and when I reflect on it now you know if more men who like maybe had a one night stand and never intended on seeing a girl again if they wanted to leave her like 100 or 200 bucks I think that would maybe piss off certain girls and then make it sting less for others. <laughs> I, I definitely, if you're going to pay someone for sex and it was just because you wanted to meet them in a bar and fuck them anyway, I mean, sure. I yeah. I mean, it's not really, I guess there's not really a difference because I thought about it later and I was like, well, shit, you know, is there really a difference other than in one situation, it's unexpected. It's, it's a very, it's covert contract. Uh, and then on the other mm-hmm. end, it's like, okay, this is what we're doing this. All right. There's a line there about consent. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something you said about the fact that all interactions have some kind of a dynamic. You and me right now, we have a dynamic. Like, you are hosting me on your show, so you are doing me the favor of bringing, like, visibility to me. I'm doing the part where I'm showing up and giving you content. This is a transaction. There's no money, but we're exchanging something. And it's like, I believe it's beneficial to both of us, you know? Um, so with that, like, we didn't, like formally talk about it but it was understood uh but it would have been very similar if you had approached me with email and you know stated these things too um but so much of dating is transactional there's the joke like well he bought me dinner i guess i should have sex with him and the funny thing about that is no you don't have to that's assumed but with sex work it is a lot more cut and dried and cleared as to what the expectations are so it's just really, it's also a thing where I see civilians, like civilian women, that's what I call non-sex yeah. worker people. I, I like that. You know, I like that term. I do too. <laughs> Dude, sex work can be like a battle to wage, I swear. But but civilians will be like, oh my God, sluts. And it's like, how much bad sex have you had for free? And you're judging the people who are able to like benefit from it somehow? Come on. <laughs> Right. So sex work is your line of work. How do you manage that with your, like, what, what are your self, <laughs> what are your self care practices with your body, especially when you have to work even during menstruation? Mm. 
Mm, I am bleeding right now. Actually. Obviously, I, I, there's no way I would have been able to come up with that question. So thanks, Erica, for helping me with that. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you, Erica. Um, yeah, you know, I complained about it on Instagram once that it's really hard to feel sexy when you're bloated and maybe you have like menstrual diarrhea or gas and crampy and hungry or feverish or just don't feel good. But you know what? You clench your butthole up, you pull that G-string up, you shove the tampon in your pussy, and you get to work. Because the other option is not going to work, but I bleed a week out of every month, so that's, if I don't go to work, that's 25% less that I make a year. Yeah. So. So you look at um, it objectively. It's like, bigger picture, I need to suck it up and be there. Yeah, and, you know, I don't, like, I don't, I don't have, a, like, migraines or, or puking when I'm on my period, thank goodness. But, um... You know, there's just a lot of things that I think people don't realize you have to think about when you are utilizing your body. Using your body is a thing that people will find a lot of shame in that. But, like, my body is a tool. I take great care of it. So um, I I actually quit drinking alcohol eight weeks ago because it's really difficult to work long-term in a strip club bar environment where we serve alcohol and to just casually drink three nights a week for ten years. You know, I can't. So that was like a decision that I made. Um, you have to make sure you get enough sleep. You have to get enough walks, nature, um, if you can. Like I'll walk my dog whether it's rain or shine if I have the time because I know that once I start getting out of my workspace, um, whether you're working in a peep show or you're doing webcam, you know, your setup or you're going to a club or you're going out to meet people in a different venue – like, it can be very, very easy to just burn yourself out with those same environments um, because it is very emotionally exhaustive to, like, be ready to party or be ready to be interesting or nurturing or, you know, pretend you're aroused for six hours. So uh, yeah. having good friends, you know, if you can afford a therapist, fantastic. You'll have to find a therapist who isn't a sex negative or a horophobic therapist. So um, that can be a little challenging. Um, I learned so many new words from you. <laughs> oh, good. Um, you know, you need to be able to find community no matter what that looks like. If it's like a Facebook group of strippers venting, cool. If it's a forum somewhere else of escorts, great. Um, but be able to talk to your peers. Um, and then I think try to remember like what the benefits are of your work. Uh, if you have like a, I've had one person tell me that their mental health um, only allows them to show up to do webcam, you know, when they can. And having a scheduled nine to five is not feasible for them. So mm -hmm. sex work is a positive in that way for them. Um, yeah. If anyone has more tips to like not avoiding burnout and just managing self-care. Oh, yoga. I do a lot of yoga. Yeah. Don't do, don't do Coke. Just don't, just don't, just don't start doing it. Don't do it all the time. Again, it's not sustainable. Don't expect to be able to be on drugs every time to get through your shift because that's not sustainable. Um, it's, you know, it's hard work. but It's just taking care you of your body. It. I do it. I mean, you, you yeah. like you said, your body is a tool. You're using your body for work, and you have to keep it at, you want to keep it at tip-top performance. You rely on your yeah. car to get you back and forth to work. Why would you put shitty gasoline in your car? So. Yeah. Kind of yeah, somewhere body, along those lines. Your body and your mind are connected. If you love your body, take care of your body, take care of your mind, all these things. You'll just be better. You'll be better at work. You'll make more money. You'll you'll be able to do it longer. Yeah. All that stuff. 
Definitely. Did L. we get to all of your friends' questions? We did. <laughs> we did. Yay! And I know you have to get out of here soon, but um, yeah. if you have a few minutes, are you able to tell us about your podcast? Because everyone yeah. really should go and listen to it. Oh, thank you. Um, I am also going to tell my listeners to listen to yours because you're offering such a great service. Thank you. Um, so my current podcast is Strange Bedfellows. You can find us on strangebedfellowspdx.com. And then we're on Instagram. Uh, we have extra content on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows. But so it is myself and Jen. Jen is also a stripper of 20 years. She is also a private investigator working for defense attorneys. Um, and so both of us can talk industry. We are night and day, night and day in terms of our sexual interests and proclivities. So it's really fun because my kinky ass gets to inform her and we have all these guests on and it's just she says she's vanilla but she's growing a lot so um it's it's just a fun show where we just talk sex and politics with two strippers who have side jobs you know yeah. and it's very it's very intelligent and very informing too i want to make sure to include that as well and following you Thank on instagram you. and seeing like some of the activist work you do it's very it's very awesome it's very inspiring and um, I'm grateful to have you on this podcast as an example of someone who's living a life after an SCI diagnosis, you know, and still able to function sexually, even through uh, the sex work that you do. And um, I know you have a very active sex life personally as well, just because I listen to the podcast. So, oh, yeah. Um, oh, my poor boyfriend. Yeah. No, he's good. He says it's never a dull moment over here. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, awesome. So, yeah. And, and yeah, and I'm on Instagram as Stripper Writer. And you can find me on StripperWriter.com. Thank you so much, L. Thank you, Courtney. Stanger, thank you not so Stanger. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to getting this out to you and speaking with you again shortly. Be happy to do it. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Reddit for now <laughs> at H on my chest. And um, you can go and follow the Facebook page, Something Positive for Positive People, for podcast updates. Instagram TV is up. I'll be posting in-between content there while you wait on the next releases of the podcast. Please continue to keep those reviews coming. It's helping people to find this podcast. It's helping with our credibility and able to help us get more um, high-quality podcast guests that you guys want to hear from. Thanks again for all the recommendations, and uh, until next time, stay positive.